Good morning, Grace. I can't believe it's the week before Christmas, can you? Time flies. Uh, we are in, uh, we have been in our series Minute Work, but we're going to pause from our study in the book of Mark uh, to focus on the Christmas season for a little bit. So I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Galatians. To the book of Galatians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, just listen in. We're only going to be focusing on uh, two verses today, but um, I think these two verses summarize the birth of Christ, the gospel story, in a pretty phenomenal way. As we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the season, I mean, it's easy to lose focus, is it not? How many of you still have Christmas presents to buy? How many of you still haven't, I mean, put up any decorations in your house and you still need to? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things going on between office parties, between open houses, between shopping, between getting our kids to behave when we're with family and friends, between cooking. I mean, it's, we're so busy during this time that's supposed to be relaxing and a time of fellowship, a time of reconnecting, and we can just get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the day. And it's a pretty phenomenal thing. And I, I, I think about when I was a child and how Christmas was so different. Do you remember when you were a kid? Do you remember how great Christmas was? Just For some, I understand it was a great time, but for others of us, it was just this time of great mystery surrounding the Christmas season. I mean, the whole house changes. The, the decorations come out, the everybody seems to be a little bit softer or a little bit more on edge. And, and then there's this, the different foods and everybody getting together wearing the bad sweaters and all, all of these different things that are going on as a family. And, and in some ways, I think children capture the wonder or understand the wonder and the mystery of Christmas better than we do. As we grow up, somehow we lose that somewhere along the line. And today I hope that we can stop and pause for a moment and rediscover Christmas together. To stop in the middle of all of the stresses, to stop in the middle of all of the planning, to stop in the middle of all of the, 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 just the frustrations and the stress and everything that we've been going through in the year, and pause and remember and gain focus in our footing on the one true foundation that never changes. And that is in Jesus Christ. So today, we're, going, we're in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, as we look at this passage, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, and it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I'd ask you to please stand with me. We'll be reading from verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence knowing that You are God and that You loved us so much that You would send Your Son to take on flesh, to become one of us, to identify with us, to suffer with us, to take our sins and sicknesses upon Himself in order to save us. Lord, please help us today have new eyes to see. May we experience the true wonder of Christmas, not in 
simple Christmas lights or presents under a tree, but to remember that you have given the greatest gift imaginable, which is your Son. We ask your blessing on our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, as we pause today, I hope that we see, as we rediscover Christmas, and it involves several things. First of all, it involves this. It, re- it involves recalling the story of Christmas. That's what this passage today talks about. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he is just reminding them of the, these details, these magnificent details, the 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 story of who Jesus is. And we need to be reminded time and time again the true meaning or the true reason. It's become a cliche, but it's true. The true reason for the season. What's going on? And we must remember that it involves a story. It's not a story about Saint Nick. It's not a story about anything else except the one true Son of God visiting His people and becoming one of us. Now, this story involves several different things. First of all, it involves a precise schedule. A precise schedule. Notice in the beginning of the text, when the fullness of time had come. In Greek, it simply means at the right time. See, God's timing is perfect. God planned this since the foundation of the world to send His Son to identify with us. That's what the story involves. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son for us. It's amazing that God's timing is perfect. Have you ever had thought or had a moment in your life where you thought your timing was right to do such and such this thing, and then you find out that it was totally the wrong moment? You ever had that? I've had that so many times in my life where it was just the wrong timing. It was the wrong moment. It, it just wasn't right. But God, it was the right time. He sent His Son. It was no secret that Jesus came into time at the exact time that He did, in the exact place that He did. God planned it. He prophesied it. He set it forth. And it's not like these prophecies that we see today that are plastered upon the tabloids at the supermarket or thrown up before us in the media, such as what happened this past year with the whole Herald camping thing. Remember that? He's like, Jesus is coming at such and such a date, May 21st. And then it didn't happen, and then what did he do? He revised it again, which is like the the sixth or seventh time, I think, that he, he did it. And he said, oh, then it's October 21st. And so he had all these prophecies, and, and it's like, that's my, that was his schedule, not God's. We can't speed God's timing up. We don't, sometimes we presumptuously go ahead trying to force God's will in a situation. God doesn't work that way. God won't be forced to do anything. We can't force God's hand. We can never put God into a corner that he should act in such and such a way. God's timing is perfect. That's perfect. And he sent his son at a precise time, a precise schedule. Now, this story involves it, Jesus coming in at a certain period of time. It wasn't a mistake, but it also involves a promised son. Now, we're Gentiles in this room. We don't understand all of the different prophecies within Judaism, but the people, the Jewish people, the, their purpose was to bring forth God's Messiah that would bring blessing to the entire world. And throughout the Old Testament, we read of these prophecies that God had given And one of those prophecies involved a promised son, that a son would be given. The prophet Isaiah spoke a great deal about this. Isaiah 7.14, we read, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So He's a 
promised Son. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6-7, through 7, we read about the description of this Son. For to us a child is born, to us a Son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. Many of us are familiar with this passage from what composer's song? The famous song we hear at Christmas all the time. The Hallelujah Chorus. Right? We hear that. And, he, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's through Bach's Wonderful Messiah. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this son was special. He was unlike any other son in time. This promised son that was to come was to take the government upon his shoulder. That he would be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, this wonderful Counselor. He would be far above and beyond anything that we could ever possibly comprehend. And he would be born of a virgin. So it's His promised Son. This is what the story involves. And Jesus is that Son. Is that Son. It also involved a a prophesied seed. A prophesied seed. When we see that this Son is born, see this this Son was promised and prophesied in the book of Genesis chapter 3. That's the first time there's ever a mention. It's a veiled reference to Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, if you're a little unfamiliar with the Bible, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ, and the New Testament is pointing back or describes His life and then points back to Him. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And all these promises were given in the Old Testament through this promised Son, this child that would come, that He would transform the world. He would be different than anything else in history. This is why I'm amazed at at individuals who recognize this. I mean, people go on day in and day out, and they don't know who Jesus is, and it's not a big deal to them. But see, some have come along through time and recognized that it is a big deal. Even Larry King, the the talk show host, the interviewer, um, they, they said, if you could interview anybody, who would you interview? It's a true story. And he said, I would interview God, and I would ask him one question. One question. Did you really have a son? He said that would indeed define history for me. Define history. I mean, he recognized it. That if God visited his people, this is different than any other faith in the world. I mean, every every other faith talks about how we have to go up to God, but this is the story about how God came down because of God's great love. It's this mystery, it's an unbelievable mystery. How God could visit His people with all of our sins, with all of our sickness, with all of our hang-ups, with all of our fears, with all of our problems, that He would come in and love us to identify with us and go through that with us. That's unbelievable to me. That the pure and holy God would visit us, these unclean, rebellious people. I mean, we've been incredibly selfish and sinful, and yet He still came, came to save us. And this prophesied seed was even foretold even after Adam and Eve totally messed everything up. I mean, they eat of the fruit, the one thing they were told not to do, and and they're still, you know, as they're scurrying, trying to put on clothes. 
God shows up. Remember this in the garden. He says, where are you? It's not that he didn't know. He totally knew. It's helped them to understand what really happened. It revealed where their heart was. And he asked them, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? He said, yes. And Adam points to his wife and says, it was the woman you gave me. It's your fault. It's your fault. And he asked the woman, did you do it? She goes, yeah, but it was the serpent. Passing the buck. And then God pronounces the curse, the result, the consequence of their action in Genesis chapter 3. And I'd like to focus on that. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen in. But this is where we get this prophesied seed because it's even in the midst of the garden, God makes this promise in the midst of this curse. He says, the Lord says to, to the serpent in Genesis 3.14, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Because the serpent, remember, it's Satan that is in this serpent, or directing the serpent. And then God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, now he's speaking specifically about an individual, he shall bruise your Head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the NIV brings that out than the ESV does. But the understanding is, is that as this, this, this descendant of Eve will crush your head, you're going to bite him. Now the word there in Hebrew shows that he's going to die in the process. He's going to crush Satan's head, but in doing so, he's going to die. That is a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. That Satan thought he was taking Jesus out God's anointed, God's Messiah through the crucifixion. He thought he was done. There was no hope. He had no idea about the resurrection. So in, in defeating God's Christ, he was actually securing his own defeat. He was, he, he was messing himself up in the process. Involved a prophesied seed. Even in the midst of the fall of man, God gave hope. Isn't that nice to know? Even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of all of the things that we struggle with, all of the sicknesses that we're facing, all the situations in which we find ourselves, that God gives us hope in the midst of it. No matter how bad it's been, no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how far we've blown it, that God is there offering forgiveness through His Son, if that if we will repent and trust in Him, it doesn't matter how far we've gone, because the Son of God went further for us. Because we're sin-reigned, Grace reigned or abounded all the more. It's very, it's an amazing, amazing picture. So man falls in the garden, death reigns, and then death spread to everybody. I'm reminded this past week, Christopher Hitchens, many of you may be familiar, maybe not, but he is one of the popular atheists. I mean, he wrote a great deal against Christianity. And there were Christians that he would debate time and time again, and this past week he died. 62 years of age. And some um, evangelical bloggers were talking that they said, you know, he's, his death is a reminder to each one of us that, we, that none of us can escape the curse. The curse is found in the fact that we die. We can argue it all we want, but at the end, death is the great regulator that everyone in this room is going to face at one time or another. We're all going to face death one day. So we see that because of the results of sin, death 
reigned. Death spread to all men because of the actions of Adam. As Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 5, he said, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law, the Jewish law, was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. See, Jesus came as the second Adam that came to do what Adam could not do. I mean, except he didn't give in to sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Yet God did not leave Man in his helpless estate, the suffering, the effects of the fall, he sent his son, the second Adam, to redeem us from this mess of sin. That's what he came to do. So we have this precise schedule, a promised son, a prophesied seed, but we also have imprisoned souls. Imprisoned souls. Paul says that he was born under the law. See, Paul was an expert in the law. The Apostle Paul, he wrote about this, and he wrote about it in Romans 3, 19-20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, we're all, we're all imprisoned. Each one of us are. We can't get to God no matter how hard we try. We can never break through. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter how many people we, we help in the world. It's never good enough in the sight of God. And yet people do it all the time. We all think, you know, if we can make the right deal with God, and if I can just somehow sneak in, there is no sneaking in to heaven. We can't do it. It's impossible. You just don't say that, oh, God graves on a curve. He doesn't. He does not grade on any curve. I mean, it's, you have to meet the perfect requirements of the law, and none of us can do it. Not one person in this room can do it. So the purpose of the law was to show us God's requirement for having a relationship with Him, but it was also meant to show our futility and inability to do that which the law requires. See, Paul describes the law in greater detail in Galatians 3 when he wrote this. He said, Is the law contrary then to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, shows that we're all sinners, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ was given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then then our law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of, many, uh, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this law imprisoned us, not freed us. But Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Now through our faith in Him, we find salvation. See, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. See, Jesus came to do what we could not, to rescue us by identifying with us. You know, the, a few weeks back, December 7th, we celebrated, or remembered, not celebrated, but remembered the bar, bar, bombing of Pearl Harbor. As President Roosevelt said, a day that will live in infamy. Seventy years. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by Pearl Harbor. I'm, I'm fascinated just to think about all of the things that happened. I mean, that day, 2,386 Americans died. A further 1,139 were wounded. 18 ships were sunk or run aground, including five battleships. Now, what most don't know is the salvage operation that ensued afterwards was one of the greatest in American history. See, naval and civilian divers spent 20,000 hours underwater and about 5,000 dives, which resulted in 18 of the 21 vessels returned to service. It's an amazing story. See, they went down there, and these, these divers would patch up the holes, and they started putting in flotation, these big, giant balloons that would help lift it. And, and because Pearl Harbor wasn't that deep, they had cranes that would come in and pull it all out. And to me, it's this amazing picture of what Christ did. Christ was one of those, the greatest diver in that he went underneath in the incarnation. He came into our world, and he ended up resurrecting us with himself that we could be restored and used. Because every one of us have been damaged by the, the blitzes of sin and sunk spiritually. But Jesus came to come into our world and then lifting us with Himself, redeeming us that we can have new life and be used of Him for His glory. He returns us to service in His name. Pretty fascinating picture. See, through, through Christ, we're no longer are beholden to the law. The law brings, us, brings to us the knowledge of sin, but now we're under the law of faith and grace in the Spirit. We don't have to perform any longer to get God's approval. As Paul wrote in one of the most heartwarming and inspiring passages of Scripture, and I, I memorized this when I was a new believer, especially Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know that I needed to hear that day in and day out I'm not condemned. Every time I sin and I would repent and I think I'd, I'd lost my salvation at that moment in time, that God didn't love me anymore because I didn't, I didn't perform well enough for His approval. And God was saying to me, no, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This past week, I got to interact with a friend of mine who, who is in ministry, uh, in pastoral ministry. And he, his life, as I've sat and talked with him uh, over the last few days, I've been amazed and saddened. Because here's a man who is a pastor of a church in a, in a church that's just grown. That he's living under law. This law of approval, of acceptance. That he always has to do something to get the approval of everyone around him. I mean, many of us have been like that. We know what it's like to, to always try to get the approval of someone. To be accepted by someone. and What we're willing to do to get someone else's favor. And this pastor, this was a pastor and he was doing it in such a way. I mean, he, he was an amazing guy. Amazing guy. He's gifted. Extremely gifted. 
He took a church of 40 people and in four year, years grew it to 700 people. That's fascinating. Into two campuses. I mean, it is growing. He's got a burgeoning staff. Things are just flying along. But in the midst of that, he started cutting corners. And he started preaching other guys' messages without giving any credit. And he got caught in it. And as he's now reflecting on what to do next and talking with the people and trying to humble himself and speaking with him, we, we were just struck by the fact that he, he was caught in this approval cycle. And then he said, well, what would it take? It's gonna, you, you need to be preaching the word, brother, to humble yourself, to be preaching your own stuff. And he said, if I did, then the people wouldn't want to hear me any longer. They wouldn't want who I really am. And I'm like, then you're just you're leading with smoke and mirrors. You're trying to gain people's favor by presenting something that you're not. You're living under a law of approval and acceptance, trying to get everybody to like you and buy into this ministry, and it's all the, great all the time, and it's like, that's not what real discipleship is. Now, do I think God has worked in spite of him? Yes, I do. But I look at him, and I feel sorry for him. And I, I see that within Christians all the time. We're so busy trying to gain God's favor. We're living under this law and not under grace. And I remember when I first got saved, I started reading books about grace, and I hated every moment of it. I hated reading books about grace because it didn't make any sense to me because it was, in, in a way, it was condemning the life that I was living because here I was submitting myself to Christ, but I was still basing it on my performance. And then when grace would came, it would basically said that it, I had no need to perform because I had already been accepted in Christ because of what Christ had done for me. And by trusting in Him, I became God's child. I didn't have to earn my sonship. I simply had to enter into it. We must learn to live in grace. If we're ever to rediscover Christmas, we must be on guard and make sure that we are also resisting Christmas substitutes. Resisting Christmas substitutes. See, we can fill up our days with so many things. During the Christmas season, it's easy to do so. Family, presents, decorating, parties, wrapping presents which are just temporary band-aids for the real life-giving power that is found in Jesus year-around. But during the Christmas season, see, television tells us that we're missing, what we're missing can be acquired at a last-minute purchase. It's like the Happy Holidays greetings that substitute Merry Christmas. See, we can't forget the purpose of Christmas, and we must make sure that we're not substituting small gadgets for the saving God. Just as I was reading today, in Leesburg, Virginia, and the town of Leesburg, see these, uh, the county courthouse has become quite a lightning rod of controversy because different people in their desire of freedom of religion, and they hate the fact that these nativities are always placed within the county courthouse, have chosen to use their religious expression to do many different things. Um, like, for example, they put Santa on the cross with a skeleton, so it's, this is a true story. I mean, you can look it up. It's in the Washington Post. And, it, it's, and it's caused residents just anger, and people are going up and ripping off the skeleton. And the, the, the artist who's done this, the creator, he said the purpose is, and in some ways I think he's, he's a little bit right because he's showing that really what's replaced Christ is consumerism. That's what's gone on. These people are angry at it. In some ways, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's wrong, but his, I think his intent was to show, hey, this is what you're really living in our world. 
this materialistic impulse that we're bowing to. We're not really adoring the Savior as much as we are just becoming consumers or racking up a whole bunch of debt in order to show some type of status in society rather than bowing at the feet of the Savior. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. And though his intent was that, I mean, there are others that have done things that have just no intent whatsoever. That's just, they're, they're trying to, they're playing a joke on the season. There's another display that's been put up or it's scheduled to be put up. And this one is by the members of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Yep, I'm not making this up. Members of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Their display will be a nativity-style scene, but Jesus is nowhere to be found. Instead, the Virgin Mary cradles a stock-eyed noodle and meatball creature, and the manger is surrounded by pirates, a solemn gnome, and barnyard animals. The message proclaims, touched by an angel hair. I mean, that's pretty overt in their description and what they think about the nativity scene. But I think many of us are much less overt in that we still, we're not, we don't do that, something so obvious. We replace it with little things, not so things that are so obvious. See, anything can replace the true meaning of Christmas. See, for some, as they did it, by putting up blasphemous nonsense, as I just mentioned, but for others, we're attempted to replace the meaning of Christmas with things and stuff, offering up pseudo-saviors. Not only must we resist Christmas substitutes, but we must make sure that we are recommitting ourselves to our Savior. Recommitting ourselves to our Savior. See, Jesus came to redeem us. To, to at, Like the proverbial atlas, He took, by humbling Himself in the incarnation, He took on the world upon Himself and lifted us up through the resurrection. But He had to bow in His incarnation to come down to be with us and then lifts us up so we ha- can become His children, His sons. Recommitting ourselves to our Savior. He came to redeem us that we might become God's children or the adoption as sons. Now, if we're God's children, then we must act like it. Which means that we are recommitting ourselves to telling others the story of Christmas. That's the hallmark of being a Christian. is telling other people about who Jesus is. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That simply means telling other people, proclaiming it. I mean, for instance, we, we tell people about a lot of other stuff. We tell people where to get the last-minute deals when we're shopping. We have no problem telling them that. We have no problem sharing with other people what our favorite Christmas movie is. Think about your favorite Christmas movie right now. It's the one you watch every year. It could be Miracle on 34th Street. It could be, I mean, it could be Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it could be a Charlie Brown Christmas. It could be any of these different things. It could be Elf. I mean... It could be any of this stuff. We all have a favorite Christmas movie, and we have no problem sharing the, the lines and the story and about how it makes us feel with other people. I mean, think about it. We do it all the time. Smiling is my favorite. See, many of you know that movie. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's from Elf. Where we think of every time a bell rings... The swings, yeah. See, it's become part of our collective psyche. Now, that's not theologically true, by the way. I'm just going to stop that right there. Um, it's not theologically right. But we all have no problem sharing the true story. And we can remember these lines of films, but yet for some reason, we can't remember just the basic elements of the gospel and tell other people about who Jesus is. 
I mean, why, why, why do we have such a difficulty telling other people who Jesus is? So we need to make ourselves re, uh, recommitted to that. Now, it doesn't have to be some amazing moment where someone sits on a plane next to you and they go, you have two minutes, tell me how I can have eternal life with Jesus right now. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. It happens in the, the, just the different circumstances in which we find ourselves in life. I mean, it can happen in a moment. And it can happen when you're just going, I mean, we had families. Now, some people are for it, some people are not. But we had some people that were trick-or-treating, and they, they told their neighbors in the midst of that about who Jesus is. And that's an example. Or getting into, we have another person, I'm not going to say their name, but got into a car accident and started telling about the hope that they have in Jesus Christ in the midst of the car accident. It can happen in any which way you want to. It can happen at a coffee shop. It can happen at the grocery store. It's just simple of starting the conversation. Just start the conversation. It's not that hard as we think it is. We, th- we have t- times to build up things in our minds and how difficult it is. It's simply just starting the conversation. Starting the conversation. We need to recommit to tell others about the true reason for the season. Because there are so many people during the holiday season who are open to hearing the truth of the gospel message. Conversations with coworkers, colleagues, classmates, family, friends. Men and women are open to hearing what it is that you have to say. I'm amazed at how many conversations God brings our way in a day. Whether it's through a bumper-to-bumper accident, visiting a relative in the nursing home, meeting someone in the supermarket, etc. God has said that the fields are white for harvest, but we act like there's just little pieces of the harvest left. That the field is bare for whatever reason. Oh, woe is me, and it's standing right in front of us. It's ready for harvest. Go to it. We don't believe the lie that there aren't people interested in hearing the story of who Jesus is. There are men and women that are supremely interested, and sometimes the ones that we feel are so far are actually the closest. And as we go through this Christmas season, we must make sure that we are trusting in Him for our security and our significance. We have to remember who we are. And during the Christmas season, it's easy to get off track, to lose our footing. We think that it's in our status with the gifts that we get. I mean, we give to people or the gifts that we give, the party that we go to. There's all of these different things, whether we have family or we don't have family, and we start comparing ourselves with each other all the time. We have to find out and stop and get, understand that our security and our significance comes from Christ and Him alone, not from all of our stuff, not in our success, Not in our self-awareness, our self-fulfillment, or self-actualization, but in Jesus and in Him alone. Now, for many of us, Christmas is stressful. Stressful with family, stressful with how we are going to pay for things. It's tempting for us to find an identity and our stuff or our status, what we can get or what we can give. But we can, can never find our security and significance in any of those things. Our security and significance must be in Jesus and Him alone. Because if we if we don't find out where our security and our significance is, if we don't pay attention, we could put our security and our significance in substitutes. Now, for example, yesterday, a story appeared about a woman in, uh, I don't even know how to say it. Where's my Michigan people? Ypsilanti? Is that how you say it? Ypsilanti, Michigan. She was shopping yesterday for her children. Like many of us, she paused in the middle to drop some items off in the car. She has a blue Ford Focus. She had, she has a mother of three. She had $700 worth of presents in her hand a lot. And she goes to her car, she puts in the key, she opens up the trunk, she throws her presents in, she goes, back, she goes shopping, she comes back, the car's gone. Wait a minute, except her car is right there. See, a car had parked nearby her own, and for whatever reason, 
her key opened that trunk. So she put $700 worth of presents in someone else's car. And she's now letting out a desperate plea because she's like, I just got laid off from my job. <laughs> Which my reaction is, is why are you spending $700 on presents if you just got laid off from your job? But see, many of us do the same thing. We lose our focus and not paying attention because we get caught off guard in the Christmas season. And we sit putting our, our treasures in the substitutes. And then the substitute is gone from our life in a moment. So we have to make sure that we are putting our treasures in the right place during the Christmas season. That our security and our significance is found in Him and in Him alone. And that means maintaining focus. Now how do we do that? In the Christmas season, this is what I... Because we can get so busy doing so many things that we have to stop and pause. Take the time each day to speak with Him. Take the time each day to speak or spend time with God. Get the divine perspective on things. Remember to, we're to, be, we're to be renewing our minds. Not conforming any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Because we're being barraged day in and day out all around us in the Christmas season. Because there are many people that are caught up and they're putting their substitute, their gift, their presents, their treasures in this, these substitutes. And they're wondering why you're not joining in. And it's tempting, sorry, it's tempting. It's tempting for us to, to want to do that and to get caught up in it. And the only way that we can do it is continually going to the Word of God to clear away the fog. It's like getting in your car in the middle of winter and the, 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 the windows are all fogged up. You have to turn on the heat to clear it away. See, many of us get caught up in the fog of the Christmas season. We have to put the heat of the Word of God to clear away the fog. And through prayer and reading His Word, all of that is cleared away that we can see clearly at what's before us. So we must make sure that we are taking time each day to get His perspective on things, to, take, to, to be filled with the Spirit, to making sure that, that we can see clearly. Now we can get so busy during the Christmas season that we don't pause and recall the reason for the celebrations we are a part of. Our business, busyness is just completely distracting and we can get caught up on all the externals and forget the heart. So if we're to discover the wonder of Christmas, we must apply all of these truths. See, but I've gotten ahead of myself. You might be here today and may not need to rediscover the meaning of Christmas, but simply to discover the meaning of Christmas. You need to receive the gift of God's salvation made available to all in Jesus Christ. He came to die for you. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. He rose again and gives us His resurrection life through faith in His name. We are all under God's wrath, every individual in this room. But Jesus came, living the life required of us, taking God's wrath upon Himself, that by faith in Him, we pass through it. He gives us the life that we are unable to live. And now, through Him, we pass through death. And just like at Christmas... When you have to get the present from under the tree, you have to stoop and humble yourself to grab it. Each individual in this room must stoop and humble themselves before the Savior to receive His gift of salvation. Every single individual. So the question that I have for us, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you received His gift of salvation? Have you turned from your sin and embraced the Savior? It's as simple as repenting 
turning from your sinful ways and receiving Him. Just stooping to bow, humbling oneself, trusting in Him. And He will give you the greatest gift imaginable, life with Him. Don't wait. Do so today. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure that there are individuals in this room right now that have not embraced who you are, that have not humbled themselves, not have repented of their sins to receive the gift of salvation made available through the risen Savior. Lord, many of us are so caught up in this cycle of self, imprisoned by the law of acceptance, always trying to garner your favor. Lord, help us to understand grace. Lord, help us to simply understand that it's by faith we are saved, through grace, and not from ourselves. Lord, we can't work our way to you. It is the gift that you have given us. And Lord, today, if there's someone here who has not yet trusted in you, that they have not yet repented of their sin, Lord, I pray that you grant them the repentance that leads to life, that you might convict their heart to do business with you, that they might repent of their sins and embrace you. They might call on your name. And we know according to your word that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I pray they might call on you. And for, Lord, for those that are also here that maybe have been caught up in the hustle and bustle of the season, who are attempting to find their, their security and significance and status or in the success and not in you, the Savior. Lord, I pray that you might help us to see that and be reminded of the Christmas story all over again about you, the divine Son, who came at the right time to save us who are imprisoned, to free us from sin, self, and death. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done and all you're going to do. May you glorify yourself in our homes as we each go our separate ways this day, as we reflect on what it is that you have done in Christ. And Lord, as we gather with family and friends, as we invite people to church this coming Christmas day, Lord, may you begin to work within hearts and minds, and may you save and glorify your, yourself in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.